Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 35 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some scattered throughout the row there in front of you. You can grab one of those, and that's page 847. Page 847. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. A new commandment. A new commandment. As we continue our study of the Gospel of John, we are now in the section known as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus shares matters privately with His disciples. And we have seen how He has washed His disciples' feet and also His words concerning His betrayal by Judas, who has now gone out to actually perform that task. It is in today's passage that we see Jesus turn His attention directly to those who are faithful to Him and begin to teach them things that are for them, for the faithful, and those who would faithfully follow in their footsteps someday. In other words, this is a word to believers, including us today, uh, as the Scriptures ought to be. And so we think of that this morning as we study our passage together. I'll have you may remain seated for our New Testament reading this morning, John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. You follow along as I read aloud. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love. For one another. May God bless this New Testament reading and the old this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray that as we study together this morning, your spirit who inspired these words in the original autographs would now attend to our time for those who are in Christ that we might have our eyes illuminated and our hearts encouraged and our faith strengthened by the means of the word of God preached. And Lord, may we apply these truths to our lives as well. And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, who are in our midst this morning, that the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, might convict them of truth and sin and righteousness, and that you would draw them to yourself, grant them the gift of faith and repentance, that they might be reconciled to you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A story has circulated that illustrates sacrificial love. It's hard to know the truthfulness of this story since there is no source and no attribution of authorship. But even if it is a parable, it is a lovely one and a helpful picture for our text this morning. It is said that Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, once had captured a prince and his family When they came before him, the monarch asked the prisoner, What will you give me if I release you? The prince responded, The half of my wealth. And if I release your children? The prince replied, Everything I possess. And if I release your wife? 
he asked, Your Majesty, I will give myself. Cyrus was so moved by his devotion that he freed them all. As they returned home, the prince said to his wife, Wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? With a look of deep love for her husband, she said to him, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. In a similar fashion, the disciples had just experienced an illustration of Christ's love for them when he took the posture of a slave and washed their feet. I'm sure in this moment, even as he has expressed this idea that someone would betray them, and as the other Gospels say, they went around the table, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And Jesus shows who it is by dipping the sop with Judas, an act of love, really. That was done for the most beloved at the feast. And as Judas goes out, they must be thinking in their minds, and their their eyes are likely fixed upon Jesus, the one who has stooped so low as to wash their feet, thinking, what does this mean? His love, the way in which he has shown love to them, he now expresses in this text, in this passage, as a new commandment to them. And we're going to unpack that in light of everything else that is said, because as we kind of read through this, we kind of wonder, how, what does that have to do with this new commandment? And it has everything to do with it, as we'll see this morning. The main idea this morning is written for you on the back of your worship folder. If you're tuned in through the live stream, you should have received an email with this, with this printed for you. Love is self-sacrificial and exemplified by Christ. And I should probably amend that a little bit and say this particular kind of love that Christ is talking about here is a love that is self-sacrificial and exemplified by Christ, not only in everything that he has done thus far in his ministry, including washing his disciples' feet, but of course, as he marches toward the cross. I want us to see three truths Jesus raises as he speaks of his departure And that really is the thrust now of this conversation. The trajectory of it is his departure. And this is what he is instructing his men, now the eleven, about. Three truths Jesus raises as he speaks of his departure. And this is sort of the umbrella, the rubric underneath which he says the rest of what he says when he talks to them about love and how he has loved them and how they're to love one another. The first truth is this. The first truth he speaks of is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son. Notice, of course, it says, when he had gone out. This is Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, who has gone out to do what he is going to do. Jesus says to him, a very heart-crushing moment here when he says, what you go to do, do quickly. Jesus knows and Judas knows what that is. It is the betrayal of. The trajectory of the conversation changes once Judas leaves. I do want us to stop for a moment and consider the fact that Jesus even showed love to Judas, his betrayer, because he washed his feet. But now that he has gone out, this message is for those who are faithful. This is now the, true, the trusted group of men. 
Jesus had indeed washed all their feet, including Judas, but the content of this discourse is just beginning, and Jesus waits until after Judas leaves to give the bulk of what he is going to tell them. But Judas indeed leaving signals an important turn. It is the final move before Jesus is going to be abandoned by all of them and go to the cross. That is what happens. But this does not signal ultimately the grief of the cross, but the glory of the Son. What an interesting phrase. I mean, Judas has just left to go betray him, and Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Look at it again. When he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. How are we to take this? How are we to understand this? Well, for one, we understand that the pathway to the Son's glorification is through the cross. And the pathway to the cross is through the betrayal. I love the language of Hebrews 12, 2. We are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the, the joy that is set before him? It is, it is not the cross. It is the, it is the glory of being seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the joy that is set before him. But he understands that the pathway for that is through the cross. For the joy that is set before him, he endures the cross, despising its shame. The cross, the shameful cross, is the way to glory And this is the glory of which Jesus speaks. And it is because he will go uh, to this glory. I'm sorry, it is is, uh, because he will go to the cross that this glory will be restored to him. It is hard for us to fully grasp the fullness of the humility of the incarnation because at the same time the Son is incarnated, he still exists eternally as the Son. Keep that in mind. We do not believe, nor should we teach, that in any way Jesus is in the incarnation lesser in his eternity. He is eternally the Son of God. No glory is stripped from him in his Trinitarian existence. But yet, here he is upon the earth, having taken on on humanity. So we need to think about glorified in three ways here. Glorified in three ways. Number one, there is the glory of the Son that is eternal. Because he is the eternal Son of God, and he, is being, he being equal in essence with the Father, eternally shares the glory of the Father. That does not go away in any sense, in any way. In other words, even as Jesus is born into the world, even as he is uh, miraculously implanted into the womb of Mary, he is at the same time sustaining the universe by his hand. He is glorious. He is Uh, one in essence with the Father and the Spirit. He is Trinity. However, in the incarnation, there is a glory that will be bestowed upon Jesus as the incarnated eternal Son, and that there is a majesty ascribed to Him in what He has done in space and time that is reflective upon the eternal plan of God in salvation history. In other words... Uh, There is a glory that is bestowed upon him because he did 
come into the world and put on flesh. And, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago, but uh, remember what Isaiah 53 says. It says that he was not much to look at. He was humbled in the incarnation. We would not look at him and say, oh, there goes the Son of God. There goes the incarnated eternal Son. But because of what he does, because of what happens in space and time, he is given a name that is above every name, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Why? Because at once, those who recognized him as the eternal Son of God and believed in him and yet did not see him, as he speaks of in a a little while, they will see his glory as of the only begotten one of God. And at once, those who are not in him will recognize the one that they mocked and scorned and did not believe in as the eternal Son of God. There is that glory. And then there is this third kind of glory. There is the glorification of His flesh, His body, that Christ took on humanity. And though He did not sin, nor was His flesh constituted sinfully, He took on real humanity that needed not only to die in the reality of all men dying, because He is truly a man and yet also truly God, but He would experience a resurrection like no other to this point, and His flesh would need to be glorified so that mortality would put on immortality, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.53. There is a, a sense of a trifold glory here, the eternal glory of the Son, uh, the, the glorification of the Son from in His incarnation where He is restored to full glory in the sense of uh, now the, the flesh that He has taken on eternally dwelling at the right hand of the Father. But in, in, for that to happen of necessity, that flesh needed to be glorified. That is the glory of the Son. That is the, the fullness of what He speaks here. Notice the way Jesus does speak about this. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Why does he uh, say now? It is because of what is about to happen. It is the pathway. But why does he use this phrase, the Son of Man? As we've explained previously, this is to identify himself as truly human. He is truly a Son of Man in the sense that he has taken on flesh, though without sin. And yet to link himself to the prophetic language as well, such as that found in Daniel 7, where Daniel states, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There is no part of that that cannot mean that the Son of Man is also one with the Ancient of Days, because it is the Ancient of Days who is given dominion over all creation and all mankind, and who has a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And it was to Him that was given dominion and glory, it says in Daniel 7. And so Jesus is bringing all of this Old Testament history together here, this, uh, this prophetic history together here, and saying, that is me. And the pathway is not through destruction and dominion over Rome at this time. It is through the humility of the cross. 
And yet part and parcel of his glory is his reign and his kingdom. If we believe that the Son is equal to the Father in essence, we must believe He is equal to God in glory. And God in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 11 says, I will not give my glory to another. Therefore, there is only one shared glory between Father, Son, and Spirit. Because God will not share His glory with another. And if Jesus speaks of a godly kind of glory, it must be that He is one in essence with the Father. As Christostom says of this passage in reference to verse 32, in regard to, and glorify him at once, or now is the Son of Man glorified, that this phrase, glorify him at once, is simultaneously with the cross. For it will not be after much time, he saith, I'm, speak, I'm, pre, I'm uh, quoting Christostom here, though he wouldn't have said it like this, this is just the translation. Nor will he wait for the distant season of the resurrection, nor will he then show him glorious, but straightway on the cross itself, his glory shall appear. And so the sun was darkened, the rocks rent, the veil of the temple was parted asunder, many bodies of saints that slept arose, the tomb had its seals, the guard sat by, and while a stone lay over the body, the body rose. Forty days passed by, and the gift of the Spirit came, and they all straightway preached Him. This is what I mean by God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Not by angels or archangels, not by any other power, but by himself. But how did he also glorify him by himself? By doing all for the glory of the Son. Yet the Son did all. Seest thou that he referenced, uh, referreth to the Father the things done by himself? End quote. Does that not bring our minds back to all that I do? I do because I see the Father doing these things. They are one in purpose because they have one will. Father, Son, and Spirit. And as we think of the glory even of the, of the cross, though it is shameful, though it is humiliating, as the church Father has shown us the glory of it, this should now enhance our worship of the Lord Jesus. In other words, kind of crassly here, so what? But yet I hope your heart is rejoicing as you hear these things. Here's the so what. This should enhance our worship of Christ. Not that we aren't worshiping Him. I pray that we are. Though if... You are in, not in Him, then you cannot properly worship Him. But if we are in Him, we either are renewed <clears throat> in our understanding this morning or we are able to learn more and it brings greater degrees of worship of our triune God as we learn and are reminded of these things. Giving God the glory that He is worth. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, you may ask, how does this fit into the main point of Love is self-sacrificial and exemplified in Christ. I hope that that is clear by now. In order for Christ to be glorified from his incarnated mission, he must be incarnated. 
We continue to come back to the Carmen Christi in Philippians 2, the, the hymn that was sung by the early church. The idea is that he did indeed humble himself. And, and what is that but a loving act? He took on human flesh. What greater love has man than this that he would give his life for his friends, Jesus says. And then he says, you are my friends. How is the self-sacrificial love of Christ exemplified in his glory? Well, there is no glory Without the incarnation, there is no glory without the cross. In the midst of this expression about glorification, we cannot miss the context in which Jesus is speaking of this. He is in the midst of telling them he is going away. And this is the path to his departure. It is actually the goal of his departure. The mission will be accomplished and he will, in some sense, fullness return to the Father. This is all headed toward the command for them to love one another, which is through the cross. Not to give away the whole thing here, but they will be his representatives as he departs. Therefore, as I have loved you and shown love to you, so you ought to love each other in the same way. A new command I give to you, that you love each other. And the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it is this departure, in fact, that he speaks of, secondly... Number two, the departure of the Son in verse 33. The departure of the Son. Look at it with me, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus uses this phrase, little children, as he comments on his departure. What do we understand by this phrase, little children? Children, well, first understand that the word that's used here is a a very endearing word uh, that parents use of their children in the original language. It's an endearing phrase of love and care. In in one sense, we understand that Jesus is like their brother. He is called our brother in the sense that we are co-heirs with him. And, and, And even in that, we would understand Even if some of them were older than him, they probably looked up to him like a big brother, an older brother. But as Carson says, and others comment, the head of this unique family gathered around the table for the Passover dinner is Jesus. If you think about the structure of the Passover, uh, the father is the one who leads the family in the events of the Passover dinner. That is the role that Jesus is taking here. He's instructing them as a father would at the Paschal meal. So he looks to them now at this meal where the father would typically lead. By the way, think about the Passover meal. I mean, elements of this meal are just bursting forth with the illustration of what's about to happen. Jesus is the ultimate Paschal lamb. He is the lamb, as John the baptizer said, who takes away the sins of the world. So even as he leads this little band of men around the table here, he's instructing them as a father would. Yet a little while longer I am with you. Jesus is beginning now to expand on this idea of his departure, which he continues to unfold in the rest of his discourse to them. Before, 
As he says in a moment, he has only said this to the Jews, mainly the religious leaders. When that phrase in the Gospel of John is used, the Jews, it typically means the Pharisees, the scribes, and and the Sadducees. When they heard these words, they must have thought that this applied only to the Jewish leadership because he had only said it to them previously. And and they probably imagined that they would continue to be with him. In fact, even what Peter says in the next passage that we'll look at together next week, uh, he says, um, Lord, I'm not going to leave you. I I will never leave you. So so in their minds, Lord, you're talking about departing, but... You've only said that to the Jews, and now you're saying it to us. Lord, I'm, we're not going to leave you. In, in fact, death has been threatened him, and from their perspective, he has somehow eluded it. <laughs> Lord, we get it. <laughs> the kingdom is about to be established. Um, some, you're talking about some departure, but, but we're, we're with you. You've eluded death so far. But yet he says here, as he is departing, they will seek him and not be able to find him. They won't even be able to go where he's going. It is in this context, of course, that Jesus reveals that he and the Father will send the Spirit and that they will not be alone. But the reality is, is he will not be with them physically any longer. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that Once Jesus ascended, that he has not stepped foot on earth again. The disciples were the last, maybe a few other followers were were the last to see him physically. If you're in Christ, we brothers and sisters have the joy of being next. Unless we die before then, so don't you go dying on me. I want to be there with you when that happens. The reality of this is the plight of every Christian after the ascension of Jesus. But why the ascension is so important and why our hope is so certain is because of the ascension. Because he was glorified, his body was transformed into that immortal body that we will also possess. We do not yet see Jesus, but when we see him, we will be what? We'll be like him. That is our hope. That is our hope. Yet he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Ultimately, this is not about eternal destiny, but about the cross. He assures them this is in just a few verses that though he is leaving them, he will eventually bring them to where he is. It is through the cross that he will bring them and us to where he will ultimately be. Again, quoting uh, Chrysostom, He showeth that his death is a removal and a change for the better to a place which admits not corruptible bodies. This he saith both to excite their love towards him and to make it more fervent. Ye know that when we see any of our dearest friends departing from us, our affection is warmest. And the more so when we see them going to a place to which it is not even possible for us to go. These things then he said, terrifying the Jews, but kindling longing in his disciples. This does not bring sadness to the true convert. It brings longing to see him. Oh, to see the Lord in his fullness. For when we see him, we will be like him. 
You see, regardless of one's eschatological or end times view, this hope is the assurance of believers. It is an already not yet hope. It is grounded in the finished work of Christ, His resurrection and ascension. And so we are transformed spiritually, but we are waiting for our physical transformation. And as you look at me, you say, Amen, brother. Cannot wait for your physical transformation. We are participants of this now by calling people to be worshipers of God and be a part of His spiritual kingdom while we await His physical kingdom. And the question I have this morning, is this what we are about, dear Christians? Are we living in such a way that we believe these things to be true, not only on Sunday, but every day? Again, perhaps we ask, how does this map onto our main idea that love is self-sacrificial and exemplified by Christ? Those whom he truly loves cannot go where he is going, but it is in the sense of the cross, but it is through the cross that he will bring them to himself, that there, where he is, they will also be as he states just a little bit further down. This is our hope, believers. Be encouraged. And what does Paul tell us? Encourage each other with this truth. How are we doing at that? How are we doing with encouraging each other with this truth? I look out at faces this morning... Faces that I love, people whom I love, people who I have the joy of pastoring with my other brother elders. And I know some of the hurt and the pain and the struggle, the things that you're going through, the things you've been through. I want not only this truth to encourage you this morning, but I want us to be encouraging each other with this truth constantly. This is not our final destination. That is, the, that is the lie of a world that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. We are not in the finished state. <laughs> he who began a good work and you will finish it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is the hope that we encourage each other with. Not that we don't encourage each other with, with daily things, with the daily hopes, with the encouragement of, of, of things that are true here and now, but we also always point to the hope of what is yet to be. If you are not in Christ, my question to you is, in what does your hope lie? And the answer is this, without Christ, you have no true hope. I want to lovingly say to you that that is the truth. My call to you then is to turn from your sin and trust in him alone. We see now that Christ, in light of all this, has just um, given them, he now gives this new command. Number three, the commandment of the son. Verses 34 and 35. In light of his coming absence, Jesus commands his men with what he calls a new command. Look at it with me. A new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another. 
How, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Love one another. This part is certainly not new. Um, You heard it in your scripture reading this morning, but turn back there to Leviticus chapter 19. If you're using that pew Bible, I'm sorry to tell you, I don't know the page number. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. If you start from the beginning of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19. Notice the context in which the Lord, notice how many times he says, I am the Lord. It's the Yahweh language of the Old Testament. I am that I am. Yahweh God, the, the God of Israel whose name is I am. The ever existing one. Notice the context in which he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He sets up a way in which even the sojourner and the poor would be able to gain food, leaving the edges of their fields unharvested, not gathering the grains. Notice, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not bear my name falsely. What does that sound like? The Ten Commandments, which is the moral law of God eternally. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, the wages of a hired worker. I mean, all these sort of civil laws that are given here to Israel, principally, that's a fun word, um, they are then carried over to us even in the New Covenant. This is the way we're to treat our neighbors. Most certainly those neighbors that we find within the local assembly, but but even more so, or or not more so, but even equally so to those who are outside. You shall not do injustice in court. What is this? This is about being truthful. It's about loving God and loving neighbor. You shall not hate your brother, verse 17, in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with him. Reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am that I am. That's the stamp that is on it. Um, You know, I, I don't want to get into all the stuff about social programs and all those kinds of things, but... Our, our, our hearts are to be bent towards loving our neighbor. Whatever that means. Whatever way in which you are able to participate in that. Do that. But it's always with the stamp of Yahweh on it. You tell them who God is. Who Jesus is. You tell them that they are in need of a Savior. And you love the community of the saints more consistently even than that. And how has Jesus expressed this? You can turn back over to John chapter 13. How has Jesus expressed this to them? I mean, certainly in his actions, he's not oppressed anyone. He has certainly called lies, lies, and truth, truth. He has certainly healed the lame and cared for the sick. He has certainly washed his disciples' feet. 
Notice the distinction there. He is loved in such great ways in the crowds, but when it comes to the inner circle, he is loving, serving. It is not for the leaders of the church, Paul says, to lord it over, but to sacrificially lead the flock, just as the Lord Jesus shows us here. It is to love now in the way that he has loved them, which is through his example of washing their feet, which is a foreshadowing of the cross. But we cannot think that love is not understood before this. But Jesus has given a great example and is about to give the greatest example at the cross. So this is the sense in which it is a new command because this is something that uh, is new in the sense of the new covenant. Uh, He's he's bridging that from the old to the new. He's saying, look, as, as I go to the cross, as I ratify this new covenant in my blood, love still stands and you're to love each other in this sacrificial way. And then he says... By your example of love, the world will know that you are my followers. Notice that love is particular here. In our culture, the famous mantra is love is love. That is just an absolutely ridiculous, and and, and I'm, I'm sorry for being crass, that's stupid. Love is love? I wrote an article on this, you can go look it up. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Whatever love is must be defined. The statement love is love intimates that there are no bounds to love, but this is absolutely foolish. No one actually believes this. No one believes while a husband abuses his wife and at the same time telling her he loves her, that he actually loves her. You want love defined. You cannot have love not defined. No one believes that an unfaithful wife who continues to adulterate herself unrepentantly and tells her husband she loves him actually loves him. You have to have a definition of love. No one believes that, forgive the the, the crassness of this, but this is where it's going. No one believes actually that pedophiles actually love children. It's an extreme stomach-churning example, but love is not... Just simply love. You must have it defined. These extreme examples highlight just from a secular perspective that the phrase love is love is fallible to the extreme. Love needs definition. And we have it in Scripture. God is love. And that means something. Don't just hurl God is love without understanding what that means. God is who He is. In fact, when you think about this idea of I am who I am uh, from the Old Testament, and He says, love your neighbor, I am the Lord. God is love. God is. And God is love. This is not an add-on to God. God and all of His attributes is who He is, and He is love. And we have here the example of Jesus and the sacrificial washing of the disciples' feet and subsequently His love at the cross to which Paul says God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How is God love? How does He eternally be love? Forgive the grammar. And then show that to us in space and time. While we were his enemies, while we hated him, while we were rebellious against him, he died for us. What 
What then is the kind of love Jesus speaks of here? Is it not the love he has exemplified in humbling himself and washing their feet? Is it not the kind of love that he exemplifies at the cross? He dies for those who are undeserving, those who are God's enemies and sinners in rebellion against him. God is love. And he has shown us this in while we deserve his justice. He places what justice we deserve on the Son. And we receive grace and mercy instead of his wrath. If you are not in Christ, I need for you to understand that this morning. You deserve God's justice and his wrath. We must understand this. And my call to you this morning is that if you are hearing this this morning, please turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. If you are in Christ, the question we must ask ourselves is, are we, we living in this kind of love by God's grace in Christ through the power of the Spirit? Are we living this out? It's interesting that later on Jesus talks about, after telling them a new commandment of love, he then talks about the Spirit coming and indwelling them. And Paul later understands that to mean this. God pours out his love into us by his Spirit. You want to love one another well? Recognize that you cannot do it without being in Christ and by the Spirit. It is Christ's righteousness, his love, that has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit, and that is what we express. Husbands and fathers, are we lovingly and therefore Humbly and sacrificially leading our families. This is not heavy-handed dictatorship. This is sacrificial love that thinks of others first, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. It is, yes, standing firmly on the truth and defending the truth, but gently pointing our families to truth. Wives and mothers... The same. Singles, divorced, otherwise, Christians, we are to be we are to be following and practicing this in our lives together. If we sin against one another, are we seeking reconciliation? Thinking of the Leviticus 19 passage. Are we going to those who've sinned against us and gently calling them to reconcile with us as we ought? Does it not stand out in your mind as a great neon sign in this passage that Jesus says, by this, verse 35, all people will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you have love for one another. Church, the world will know we are his followers by our love for one another, and we cannot be loving of one another if we are not reconciled to one another. Now you say, we are reconciled to one another. That's what the gospel does. It reconciles us. Yes and amen. But if you are not continuing to practice that by repenting and reconciling, then you are in effect not undoing the gospel, but not living according to the gospel. 
The gospel changes us, but that change is continual. We are not in this local assembly to be known most by our political positions, by our favorite um, television shows, by our um, favorite activities, or, 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 or anything else. We are to be known by our biblical position, which is in spite of our differences, so long as those differences do not involve sin, we are to love one another. And love has been defined for us. And love does not let someone stay in sin. It rather calls us to reconciliation. And love puts the other person ahead of myself. Let us be reminded of what Paul says about love. Biblical biblical self-sacrificial love in 1 Corinthians 13. Make a right hand turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians. We would do well to memorize these verses. The Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love. And so in 1 John, we get an expression of that. Our brother pastor exposited from 1 John last week. John was there with the Lord when he made this command, but Paul was not. But look at what Paul says in light of what he understands Jesus to have said about love in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Can I translate that into something for us today? If I have the best grasp on theology and I can tell you everything that has to do with the gospel, but I don't do it with love, then I am just simply a noisy gong. I love theology. (laughs) I love studying God's word and studying theology. It's one of the passions of my heart. But if I just simply spout it off without having a heart of love, then I am just noise in the ears of people. Verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. No matter what you can do for the Lord, quote-unquote, you have not love, you are nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, there is no work that I can do that replaces what Christ has done for me and brings me into His family. doesn't matter if it is not encased in love. Now notice what he says in verse... Here's, here's the part I think we need to memorize. That other part too, but this is the part we really need to commit to memory. Love is patient and kind. Ooh, that hurts. Love does not envy or boast. Oh man, that stings. It is not arrogant or rude. Man, I'm really failing at this thing. It does not insist on its own way. I I mean, let's just close our Bibles and pray in repentance right now. It is not irritable or resentful. My goodness. Let's get on our knees does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Paul says right before this, now these three stand, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Why? 
Not because love is some ooey-gooey, squishy, worldly thing that, that they want it to be, but because God is love. Church, is this how our marriages are to look? This is how our parenting is to look. Our relationship with each other as members to one another is to look. Let us pursue this today, not just on Sundays, but every day. Are you loving each other in this way, reaching out to one another, caring for one another? Let's live it out. Once again, I say to those who are not in Christ, turn from your sins, trust in Christ, believe in him today. And you will know this kind of love. Will you pray with me? Lord, I confess my lack of love. Help me look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of my faith. Who for the joy, the the glory that was set before him, endured the shame of the cross, despising it, and yet loving a sinner like me while I hated you. You loved me. Lord, help me to love you. Help us to love you. Help us to confess when we fall short, not because... That earns something for us. It's already been earned. That's why we can confess. Let us be reconciled to one another. Let's lovingly call each other to truth, yes, but gently so. Let us lovingly call the world to turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.